This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 24, The Lavish and the Revolting. The court of Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, became widely known as the most extravagant and luxurious in Europe during the almost 50 years of his reign between 1419 and 1467. Using pomp, ceremony, and patronage of the arts, an image was created of Philip as a wise, just, and fair ruler, the Grand Duke of the West. During the celebrations of Philip the Good's marriage to Isabella of Portugal in Bruges in 1430, he created the Order of the Golden Fleece, a military group that celebrated the chivalric tradition and served to add prestige and honour to the immense power that Philip had acquired in his schemes of territorial expansion. The creation of such an order was part of a greater image of courtly splendour, of festivity and spiritual devotion that Philip established in order to validate his rule and create stronger bonds of identity with his subjects. Even when those subjects went into rebellion against him, very violent rebellion against him, which Bruges did in 1436, his subjugation of them would include using these cultural elements to reinforce their relationship. In the previous two episodes, we have diverted ourselves away from the Game of Thrones layer of the story a bit and tried to focus more on grassroots developments which were happening in the Low Countries during the first couple of decades of the reign of Philip the Good. Today, we are going to return to old mate Phil to take a look into just how the Duke and his household went about solidifying their position as the top dogs in the region. Whereas previously we have seen how he used his political cunning and guile to get the better of his cousin, Jacqueline of Bavaria, today we will see how he used that most burgundis trait of splashing cash, giving gifts, and mutually rubbing other people's backs. In his base in Flanders and in his newly acquired territories, Philip would succeed in attempts to bring order to what was a potentially very unstable region. By 1430, Philip was in his early 30s and had already been married twice. As a child, he had partaken in that great family tradition of being married off by his parents to the offspring of a political rival for matters of diplomacy. At the tender age of eight, Philip was engaged to Michelle, a daughter of the mad King of France, Charles VI and Isabeau of Bavaria. By our calculations, this would mean that Philip and Michelle were second cousins, 
which actually doesn't seem so incestuous compared to yeah, the other marriages we've seen so far. In the aftermath of John the Fearless's killing of Louis of Orléans, their union became one half of a diplomatic double wedding intended to bridge the divide between the families. Kind of like, hey, sorry my dad killed your uncle. Let's get married. Speaking of bridges, years later, Michelle's brother invited Philip's dad to one and then had him murdered on it. Michelle apparently suffered from some kind of immense psychological trauma, gee, I wonder why, from which she never recovered, and she died in 1422, at just 27 years of age. Philip was remarried two years later to his dead uncle's widow, Bonne of Artois, though she died less than a year after that. So here was this rich, virile man. We say virile because he already had several illegitimate children and would go on to have 26 in total the sly dog. He had a vast dominion of lands, but still no legitimate heir to inherit them. He was, simply put, a very eligible bachelor, and a lot was riding on his next marriage. This was a very misogynistic society, but female rulers of territories could and did play significant governing roles. There was a history within the rule of Flemish counts of their wives and mothers holding authority while their fathers, husbands, or sons were absent for whatever reasons. Philip came from family branches that had provided extremely strong-minded and capable women, such as his cousin Jacqueline, and his mother Margaret, and Jacqueline's mother Margaret, and his sister Margaret. So, we can assume that Philip not only wanted to make a smart political move, but also to choose a wife who could ably perform her role in governance. Philip investigated various possibilities before deciding to set his sights on Isabella of Portugal, daughter of King João. João. Wait, it's Portuguese for John. King John of Portugal and sister of the appropriately named Henry the Navigator, whose future sponsorship of voyages of exploration would become so crucial in establishing the early Portuguese thalassocracy during the Age of Exploration. Isabella was born in 1397 and for her first 30 years had very little luck in her official love life. Attempts had been made by her father to capitalise on her marital worth, such as with the English in 1415, but all of these had failed. She was an intelligent and capable woman who was also linked by family to the Lancastrian English, her great-grandfather being Edward III, the King of England who had had himself crowned as King of France in Ghent roughly 90 years earlier, which had started so much of the turmoil we found ourselves mired in. Philip always had to consider relations with the English and the French in every decision he made, and while his first two marriages had kept him close to France, by this stage the English had a very solid foothold on the continent and still engaged in conflicts with elements of the French royal family. Philip was also officially allied to the English, and in a powerful enough position to no longer have to pander towards his very weakened, yet still technical sovereign, the King of France. He saw the potential in making this alliance to maintain the balance system which he had built upon and rested on. So he sent a delegation to Portugal to figure things out. Seven months passed between the arrival of Philip's embassy and the legitimization of the marriage, 
Philip had sent his Chamberlain-slash-court painter Jan van Eyck as part of the embassy to Portugal to take part in the negotiations and also with the instruction that he send back two portraits of Isabella for him. A sneak preview, so to speak. The two were actually officially wed with proxies and then Isabella and the whole contingent due to go back to Flanders waited a further eight weeks before setting off with violent weather along the way, creating further delays. Finally, on Christmas Day 1429, her ship came to dock in Slaus, outside of Bruges, and Isabella of Portugal arrived in the Low Countries. We can only imagine how she must have felt, but we can assume that it involved generous portions of being cold and nervous. This kicked off a frenetic few weeks in the area as representatives of the four members of Flanders came to greet her and preparations were made for the wedding and Isabella's grand arrival in Bruges. Although the wedding itself was a low-key affair in Slaus on January 7th, her entrance into Bruges the following day was a fantastic display of the wealth, extravagance and ostentatiousness for which the Burgundian court had become renowned. In his book, Philip the Good, Richard Vaughan describes the event based off Burgundian chronicler Jean Lefavre's account. Quote, A 400-man escort had been provided for the convoys of carts which wound their laborious way northwards from Dijon and Lille to Bruges, carrying the raw materials for courtly entertainment and luxury. There were 15 cartloads of tapestries, 100 wagons of Burgundian wine, 15 cartloads of arms and armor for tournaments specially made at Bezamion, and 50 loads of furnishing and jewels. The Ducal Palace at Bruges was transformed by the construction of a whole range of elaborate but only temporary buildings in wood, which was set up in the main courtyard. Three spacious kitchens, three ovens, and six larders one each for soups, boiled meats, jellies, roast meats, pastries and fruit were arranged around a single banqueting hall, which was 150 feet long. A beautifully painted wooden lion on the exterior facade of the palace poured wine from its paw into a basin below. Inside the courtyard, a stag and a unicorn dispensed hippocras and rose water in the same manner. Inside the banqueting hall, a minstrel's gallery held 60 heralds, trumpets, and musicians, and on a gilded tree were hung the coats of arms of the Duke's lands and gentry. Isabel of Portugal was met outside the town and escorted through streets hung with crimson to the sound of a fanfare from 76 trumpets. The herald tells us exactly who was present at the banquet and where they sat at table. He describes how each dish was accompanied on the table or sideboard by a sort of tableau or spectacle. There were women holding unicorns, goats, and pennons bearing the ducal arms. There were men, also with ducal arms, fitted out as savages or wild beasts, riding on roast pigs. Next to one dish was a castle, with a wild man in the central tower holding the inevitable ducal banner, while in each corner tower a woman held a pennon decorated with the arms of one of the ducal territories. But the piece de resistance was a huge pie containing a live sheep dyed blue with gilded horns and yet another man got up as a wild beast. End quote. 
I've been to a lot of weddings, but I've never seen a pie stuffed with a live sheep dyed blue with golden horns. Worst shepherd's pie ever. The wedding was followed by a series of tournaments held in the centre of Bruges, which the whole population could come out and celebrate. To cap off all of this partying, Philip the Good then announced the creation of a brand new chivalric order, the Ordre de la Toisson d'Or, the Order of the Golden Fleece in terribly mangled French. Chivalric orders had been around for a long time. They were basically lads clubs for rich knights. Highborn nobles with certain ideas about their family's glory could come together and make agreements about ways to behave and whether to go and fight this battle or that war. Being in an order increased the perceived valour and honour of a knight who was anointed in one. At this point in our story, we are coming towards the end of the chivalric tradition and the role of knights in society, but the Order of the Golden Fleece simply dripped with class and was another mantle upon which Philip could demonstrate his extremely high prestige. There are varying explanations and myths behind the Order's name. The most obvious is that it is a reference to the ancient Greek myth of Jason and the Argonauts and their quest for the Golden Fleece. Prevenir and Blockmans argue that by using this name, Philip was drawing a connection from the ancient Trojans through Charlemagne to himself. It's possible. It's pretty a wild connection, but it's possible. But given how very, very, very Christian Europe and Philip's world were at the time, it seems improbable that this chivalric order would be named after a pagan story. Other stories include that he became so enamored by a beautiful blonde woman in the crowd at the festivities that he spontaneously named the order after her, which seems a bit unlikely given that he was literally celebrating his wedding to Isabella at the time. A more salacious version is that one morning when the Duke's chamber was being cleaned, the blonde pubic hair of one of his favourite mistresses was found in his bed, leading to much amusement among those in his court. This annoyed the Duke so much that he decided to make that blonde hair the greatest symbol of honour in Burgundy. Take that! Perhaps, though, it was just a reference to the thriving wool industry in Flanders at the time. Whatever the case may be, according to Philip, the purpose of the Order of the Golden Fleece was, quote, for the reverence of God and the sustenance of our Christian faith, and to honour and enhance the noble order of chivalry, and also for three reasons hereafter declared. First, to honour the ancient knights. Second, to the end that these present may exercise the deeds of chivalry and constantly improve. Third, that all gentlemen, marking the honour, paid to the knights, will exert themselves to attain the dignity. End quote. Philip gave 24 positions to various knights, led by a sovereign who was, unsurprisingly, the Duke of Burgundy himself. A bunch of terms and conditions were laid out, 94 statutes to be exact, and members had to swear oaths upholding them. This was pretty common with such orders, but Philip instituted a few that were special to his. As sovereign, he would not go to war without consulting the other members, and any disputes between the members would be tabled before the order to be settled. 
One of the most intense rules was that if you were part of the club, you were not allowed to show anything but bravery on the battlefield. You could be kicked out for cowardice. Meetings of the Order of the Golden Fleece were known as chapters, and they could come together at irregular intervals. Between 1431 and 1559, they met in total 23 times. These were moments of great pomp and circumstance and would be huge events for the places that hosted them. During the chapters, there was a kind of behavioral review in which members had to swear that they had done nothing to damage or cause offense to the honor of the order. If it was decided that they had, the sovereign could determine and mete out punishments. If it was decided that they hadn't done anything disgraceful, they would be patted on the back for a job well done, but then told to do even better. After this, the sovereign himself would go through the same process with the knights of the order laying judgment on him too and admonishing him for misdoings, something which would occur quite often with the next Duke of Burgundy that is going to follow Philip. As a supposedly militant body, members had to demonstrate proficiency in martial arts with some sort of weapon. But given that the whole thing was shrouded in symbolism and designed to just boost self-image, and that it included some pretty old and non-militant men, it is doubtful that members had to do more than just wave a sword around or twirl a staff around a bit, if anything at all. There were strict guidelines on what they had to wear and when they had to wear it, whether red or black or white robes or whatever. One rule was that they had to wear every day a special golden collar which they received upon entrance into the order. We'll put a picture up on our website and a link in the description of the podcast for you to take a look at this collar, but just imagine a huge shiny jewel encrusted golden chain made up of interlocking fire steels, the Duke's symbol, which if you squint your eyes hard enough kind of looks like bees for burgundy, and from which in the center dangles a golden sheep. It's absolutely ridiculous, but also awesome. The heirs of any knight of the order who died were according to Monstrelet, honour bound to return the collar to the Duke of Burgundy for him to give it to the next member. Apparently, one of those collars today is worth 50,000 euros. As you might imagine, though, wearing such a thing all the time is not exactly practical. So this rule was quickly amended so that they could just wear the sheep pendant on a silk string, and in battle, they were allowed to replace it with an engraving on their armour so that nobody would grab it and run off with it. The ceremonies which they undertook were tied up with the strict Catholicism of the time, so included mass and prayer and ceremony, but often also recognition of deceased members whose names would still be called out in the roll call, but be followed by the words, il est mort, he is dead, with a candle then being lit, displaying the dead knight's coat of arms. Two great tomes were kept, one to record all the great feats and deeds of the members, the other to keep track of all their errors and the punishments given out for them. Kind of similar to that journal kept by the Kingsguard in Game of Thrones. <sighs> Let's not make any more Game of Thrones reference, it just turns out crap. Throughout the almost 600 years since its creation, the Order of the Golden Fleece has consistently been considered the most prestigious and exclusive Christian order. Membership meant that you could join no other chivalric club except for royalty who were the leaders of those clubs. Throughout history, it would split into two branches, one Austrian and one Spanish, 
but only the Austrian can trace a direct line of obedience to the religious order that Philip the Good summoned into existence on his wedding day in 1430. So even though the membership capacity was eventually doubled to 50 knights at one time, it still means that only around 1,300 people have ever been a part of it. Current members of the order in 2020 include Akihito, former emperor of Japan, Queen Elizabeth II of the UK, can't wait to see what her martial skills are, and Princess Beatrix of the Netherlands. As if any of them really needed a new 50 grand necklace. Anyway, they've got it. By the 1430s, Philip had settled into his role as the Grand Duke of the West. With the instability that had continued rocking the French throne, and by keeping himself out of conflict with the English, and in fact in alliance with them, he established probably the most dependable regime in Western Europe. He ruled a diverse array of subjects who lived in culturally different provinces, each with their own traditions and historical quirks. Philip needed to find ways to build connections between himself and them as best he could, and this was usually done in his family's manner of throwing festivals and banquets and giving gifts to the right people. All of it was to reaffirm his curated image of Burgundian prestige and an understanding of what the relationships between him and his subjects was, which was built on three pillars, justice, equity, and common good. Don't get confused between equity and equality, by the way. Equity meant that essentially everyone should be on the same page, that Flanders was legally his land. He was the prince and had the power of justice and that his subjects were owed and could expect his protection. One of the most evident ways that Philip fostered that identification and relationship was through his patronage of art. Musicians, poets, painters, and sculptors were drawn towards the Burgundian courts, paid handsomely, and encouraged to create works that celebrated the kind of cultural elements that would become associated with what we understand to be the Renaissance. The social elite in all his domains would seek to imitate his lead and so put ever more value on patronage and a culture began developing in which artists could strive to improve their skills and reach their potential. A group of composers who became known as the Burgundian School emerged in Bruges, Brussels, Lille and Arras. The encouraging atmosphere of the Burgundian court allowed for the creation of authorised secular music, and this cultural freedom would engender an atmosphere that kept inspiring and drawing more musicians to it. There was a shift from Paris towards Flanders and Burgundy as the centre for modern fashion of polyphonic, vocalised secular music. The best-known composers of the time include Gilles Binchois and Guillaume Dufay. We will also put some links up on our website to various YouTube videos of music made from these composers' works. Many who came through the school in the Low Countries would take their talents to courts around Europe, inspiring an international music style known as Franco-Flemish, or the Netherlandish School of Music, which I am going to loosely label as the main soundtrack of the Renaissance. So there you go. Eurovision levels of musical influence in the nascent stage of the Renaissance. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Philip was also a patron of the arts in other ways, 
with his court assembling some of the greatest painters of the time. We briefly mentioned Jan van Eyck earlier, Philip's chamberlain and court painter who had been sent to paint those portraits of Isabella before the wedding. Considered to be one of the greatest early painters of the Low Countries, van Eyck had previously been in the employ of John of Bavaria in Holland, but after his death, van Eyck had travelled south and ended up in Philip's household. Van Eyck was a great exponent of using oil-based paintings in his work, as well as a drying agent which was becoming popular for artists in the Low Countries at the time. His expertise in applying specific layers of colour, of varying transparency or opaqueness, and being able to apply extra layers over time, meant he could portray depth, light, and texture in a way that must have been absolutely mind-blowing at the time. Again, We'll put up links and images on our website, but Van Eyck's works, such as the Ghent Altarpiece, the main bit of which is known as the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, remained famous to this day, and still attracted tens of thousands of visitors in Ghent before COVID-19 decided to ruin everything. Other well-known painters who flourished under the cultural atmosphere developed in the Burgundian court include Rogier van der Weyde and Petrus Christus. But there was more. During the reign of Philip, he employed jewelers, goldsmiths, and architects. Huge tapestries would be created for the ceremonies and celebrations of the court and the chapters of the Order of the Golden Fleece. Philip amassed a whopping collection of books with an apparent taste for history having many Latin texts translated into French, such as the history of Rome from its founding through to the reign of Domitian, as well as the Chronicles of Hanno and the Chronicles of Holland and Utrecht. He employed a guy whose work we've used, Chastelain, to be his own court chronicler. During his reign, poets thrived, as well as collections of more gossip-like stories about the court life. Many of these works were illuminated, which is to say that the pages of the books were highly decorated and illustrated. Visitors to the Burgundian court would be shocked by the lavish splendor it simply exuded from all corners, and there, in the middle of it all, stood Philip. Philip found ways to implement his power in different places, whether in towns or regional areas. If you cast your mind back to the beginning of the 14th century, you'll remember that Flanders was constantly facing the prospect of being absorbed into the French realm. Even Philip's grandfather and father had concerned themselves more with French affairs than those of their low country domains, and we have seen how Philip had set out on his own very different approach, creating a sense of centralized low country Burgundian autonomy. Philip built up a clientele network amongst the local elite and nobility with him at its center as well, using the arts and other means by which to sell the idea of a strong and independent Flemish identity with a powerful prince at the top of it all. In Holland and Zeeland, which was mired in the civil war between hooks and cods, whose respective levels of influence varied from town to town, Philip set about putting in his own ducal administrators and trying to build the same sort of clientele network. However, he had to tread extremely carefully because of the parochialism that lingered between Hook and Cod factions. Because he was not physically present much in these northern domains, he could not maintain the relationship with his subjects as easily as he did in Flanders or Brabant, where traditions such as 
the joy entrees, the joyous entries, and the glamorous Burgundian weddings that were held perform those roles. Also, in Flanders and Brabant, there were literally central courts where people could go to, whereas in Holland and Zeeland, local power bases grew and Philip had to appoint people to look over them for him on his behalf. He appointed a stadtholder to rule in his stead and act as a conduit by which he could make decisions for the territories without being there. The noblemen he appointed to this position were consistently foreigners to Holland and also members of the Order of the Golden Fleece. Now it is time for the Order of the Random Advertisement. We swear we will be back on the other side. How well we've behaved in the meantime is another matter. You know what we haven't had in a long time? If you said a Flemish urban revolt, then you are correct. And we are definitely due on. The Burgundian dukes, when they became the Counts of Flanders, proved themselves pretty apt at balancing the simmering angst that we have seen consistently arising between Flemish urban and regional needs and the demands of their counts. To be fair, Philip the Bold had learned well from his father-in-law, Louis of Marley, and John the Fearless had shown himself willing to put a lot of responsibility onto Philip the Good from a young age. We saw around the time of the Liège Rebellion in 1411 how a young Philip had navigated his way through the beginnings of a rebellion by the Bruges militia. They had abandoned his father's army in France and refused to re-enter their city until Philip did away with the Kalfsfell law, which had forbidden them from assembling without his permission. Philip had given this and other concessions and so avoided full-scale rioting in Bruges and the always-present threat that any revolt anywhere could ignite all across Flanders. The revolt that kicked off in Bruges in 1436 was brewed from the same ingredients that Flemish town revolts always are, different factions defending their rights or pushing for greater political influence and rights against their count, always on the backdrop of certain economic and social conditions. Of course, by certain economic conditions, we mean the ability to get cheap wool from England. You might remember that Philip had declared an official alliance with the English after the murder of his father. The most famous occurrence that resulted from this was in 1430, when Philip's forces captured a girl called Jeanne d'Arc, Joan of Arc, who had built a stunning career to become a top French general at 15 years of age. Philip sold her to his English allies in 1431, who then burned her alive. In 1435, Philip ditched his alliance with England and signed the Treaty of Arras, renewing his allegiance to France. This was effectively an end to the divisions between Burgundy and France that had seen civil war and the assassinations of the Duke of Orléans and John the Fearless. For the Flemish people, it was the sort of stuff that nightmares are made of. They had long sought a trade agreement with England and got it, but now it was completely under threat as the Hundred Years' War had kicked off again. 
At the same time, other economic power bases were beginning to come into conflict within the entangled web of international business that had been built. The Hanseatic League and Holland started jabbing at each other and then took the next step towards piracy against each other, which we went into in the last episode. This also caused instability for international commerce. Essentially, the people of Flanders were in a recession and looking at how big events beyond their control were probably going to cause even greater uncertainty to their already uncertain lives. Then, in the midst of all of this, Philip told the towns of Flanders to get ready and set about assembling an army to help him attack the English at Calais in the middle of 1436. The Flemish were not at all happy about this either. The bourgeois, however, were a little unhappier than most. The small town next to Bruges, Slaus, which we have visited many times on this podcast, was in a very autonomous mood at this time and was seeking greater rights for itself. The people of Slaus wanted to step out of the shadow of their much more powerful neighbour. Bruges was displeased about this prospect as Slaus was their nearest port and they depended very heavily upon it. Over the years, Bruges had deliberately acquired certain rights in regards to Slaus. In June 1436, some Hansa merchants were killed in Slaus, adding even more tension to the pot of trouble brewing. The Hanseatic League put a blockade on Flemish ports in response, and everybody clenched their buttocks and grit their teeth a bit more. When Philip began raising an army to attack Calais, he did not order any men from Slaus, but instead allowed them to stay and protect Flanders from a naval invasion. This really annoyed the people of Bruges. When Philip then attacked Calais in July, he and his forces met heavy defeat. The Ghent militia at some point just said, screw this, and packed up to go home. Other Flemish soldiers soon followed suit, including the bourgeois. The English, knowing that Flemish and Burgundian forces were in disarray, set about looting the Flemish countryside, which is never nice for the people being looted. When the militia of Bruges arrived back to within vicinity of the town walls, they repeated the same tactic as their predecessors had done in protest of the Karlsfell back in 1411. They stayed outside, demanding that Philip reaffirm Bruges' rights in Slaus. Acting on Philip's behalf, Isabella of Portugal went and negotiated with them, offering that they could go to Slaus and help protect Flanders there. But when the bourgeois got to Slaus, the ruling elite there did not let them into their city. So by this stage, everyone was just really angry. The Bruges militia remained in formation outside Bruges, while inside the walls, the deans of the guilds set about taking over the city and forming their own council. They began inciting rebellion against Slaus and the ducal offers, and soon the wealthy elite who had been in charge of Bruges in the decades since that last revolt were imprisoned. Then the duke's judicial representative, the sheriff, was murdered, and the word of revolt began spreading out, threatening to erupt across Flanders. Philip was in a tight spot as the English were running rampant and he needed his Flemish troops. By October, he was looking for a mediated peace, which he managed to reach with this new ruling council of Bruges. He forgave the rebels, and he named a new sheriff. 
The rebels, however, wanted to make a point about slaves, which is the whole reason they had given for this revolt. They exiled 18 people from Bruges, only a couple of days after receiving Philip's letter of forgiveness, and this included some very important people from Slaus. It was a big middle finger to their small neighbour, and instantly the negotiated peace was over. Slaus begged the Duke if they could blockade the Zvin River, and he agreed. Bruges effectively came under siege. The winter that followed in Bruges sounds absolutely awful. The Duke placed countless agents among the citizenry and moderate, more middle-class people began assassinating some of the extreme members of the rebellion and collaborators. This then resulted in reprisal killings and a general tension caused by the blockade and growing air of fear and suspicion escalated to the point that in April 1437, the mayor of Bruges was lynched in the main market square. The reason given is that he was suspected to have been in the Duke's employ. He very well may have been. The blockade was working, and as these moderates took more control of Bruges, the alderman began imploring the Duke for peace terms again. Philip responded in May, by arriving not far away from his rebellious town with an army of about 3,000 men at arms. Bruges frantically assembled an embassy to go and beg his mercy and apparently they requested that he bypass the town and take his army and carry on his way. Philip refused. The accounts of what happened on the 22nd of May vary greatly. There are ducal accounts and Flemish accounts and other chronicles by different people who had different interests in how all of the parties involved came out of it being portrayed. We have relied extremely heavily on Jan Dumoulin's the Terrible Wednesday of Pentecost, which does an amazing job of bringing many different accounts together. It seems that Philip approached the town despite the endearments of the Bruges embassy and a contingent of monks and nuns were sent out to meet him. Conventionally, a foreign army could not move into or through Flemish cities without express permission of the four members. Philip's 3,000 soldiers were Picards, people from the northern lands of France next to Flanders, so they were foreigners. So he had to wait for this permission and possibly sat there for hours doing so. He refused to go into Bruges without his soldiers and eventually the alderman agreed that he could come in with several hundred men. When the army began moving through the gate into Bruges, some of Philip's knights held it open until at least a thousand men had gone through. There are also reports of bourgeois citizens clearly armed as they lined the streets, peered over the walls, or stared out their windows at the incoming foreign troops. Now inside the city with his thousand or so men, apparently when Philip learned that the gate had been shut, he ordered it to be reopened, and the city leaders refused. Who knows what the spark was for what happened next? Maybe there was an ambush by some people on the Duke and his troops, or maybe, as some accounts have it, the Picard soldiers began shooting arrows at people standing by their windows, or that Philip even, dressed in black as a prince of vengeance, cut down and killed an old unarmed baker who had come out and doffed his cap to bid his prince welcome. Whatever happened, mayhem erupted. 
and Philip and his men, including some very high-up nobles, were caught in the thick of it. Hand-to-hand combat and street battles raged on the main streets and the market square of the town, where every recent tourist to Bruges has wandered up and down between waffle shops, churches, and H&M stores. The Duke and his men tried to take the marked, but more and more of them were cut down, including one of the wealthiest and most important knights in Philip's service, a member of his select Order of the Golden Fleece, Jean de Villiers. Il est mort. Philip and his men realized that they must escape or they too would die. Different stories tell of a collaborator or a tradesman who helped them open a locked gate which they had fought their way to, and the few surviving men escaped with Philip's records relaying that he personally took the rear guard to protect them all. From the bourgeois perspective, they had achieved something about which songs could be sung. From a bystander's perspective, such as that of Abbey chronicler Adrian de Boot, who was in no way aligned with the rebels and their cause, but wrote that, quote, They saw themselves cruelly invaded, and they convened and manfully resisted. End quote. Once the Duke had fled the scene, the fighting still continued in Bruges. Of the aftermath and the days that followed, Jan Dumoulin puts it very well. Quote, the Flemish chronicles state that the ditches along the streets were full of dead Picards. Some had hidden in inns and houses, but the Brucklingen, great other name for the bourgeois, spent the rest of the day and night chasing and killing them. The next Friday, a scaffold was set up in the market and 22 Picards were beheaded. End quote. Despite their victory in this spontaneous eruption of violence, the Bruges revolt was still on its last legs. Philip increased the blockade and pretty soon people in Bruges took control of the city and ended it by December 1437. In March the next year, they negotiated terms and punishments with the Duke and 40 rebels were dished up for public execution. He levied a huge fine of 200,000 golden riders and stripped Bruges of many of its privileges over slaves and also the regional area beyond its town limits, the Franc of Bruges. He also ordered that the town would have to make an amont honorable, a public apology, when he next came back to it. Flemish urban revolts were kind of like rites of passage for Flemish counts. Philip had successfully navigated his first extremely serious one. It had been way more difficult than the Karlsfeld uprising 25 years earlier, and even though... He was now a very experienced prince, he still would have learned a lot from it. Namely, the political lesson was the same one that the Counts of Flanders seemed to require reminding of every few generations. Do not mess with the wool trade between Flanders and England. Despite having made this grave error, and having had moments where he would literally have feared for his very life, he managed to come out of it in control, while Bruges came out in worse shape than it had been. Negotiations continued afterwards between Burgundian, French, and English entourages to try and sort out all the messiness of what had just gone down and try to bring matters to a close. In 1439, emissaries from all three sides met just outside a town in today's France called, in French, 
Gravelines, in Dutch Gravelingen, and in Australian Gravelines. It was right near the border of English and Burgundian territories. Representing Burgundy was Isabella of Portugal, the Duchess, who was a sympathetic choice for the English due to her Lancastrian family ties, while the English were represented by Isabella's uncle, Cardinal Henry Beaufort. A gigantic temporary town was built, a bunch of huge pavilions and tents were brought in, and apparently ostentatious displays of hospitality were exhibited between both the sides. The negotiations dragged on for months, and although no lasting peace was decided here between England and France, Isabella was able to marry her and Philip's eldest son and future Duke of Burgundy, Charles, at the tender age of seven, to the daughter of the French king, Charles VII. Probably the most important thing to come out of this conference for our story is that trade relations between England and Flanders were once again normalized and secured after Isabella and her uncle apparently sat down face to face together and hashed out a bunch of arrangements. A treaty was made to ensure the safety and security of merchants from both sides in their dealing in each other's territories, and this agreement would continue until the end of the century. Even more spectacularly, however, in these negotiations, Isabella was also able to secure from the English the release of Charles, Duke of Orléans, from their custody. Charles was the son of Louis of Orléans, who Philip's father, John, had had butchered on the street in Paris all those years ago. He had been part of the Armagnac faction with whom the Burgundians had had so much tension, and after the Battle of Agincourt, he had been captured by the English, and then held hostage for 25 years in the Tower of London. Isabella had been able to convince most of the French nobility to throw in cash and buy his release, and Charles himself had agreed that he would give up on the quest for vengeance for his father's death, which he had sworn himself. By November, Charles, Duke of Orléans, was a free man and met by Isabella, apparently speaking better English than French, which makes sense considering he'd spent over half of his life in an English prison. In these negotiations, Isabella had proven herself to be extremely capable, and Philip had made a very wise choice indeed, picking her to be his wife. So with this new trade agreement sorted out, and having an extremely high-profile former enemy now in their debt and in their possession, the Duke and Duchess of Burgundy decided that the best thing to do now was to show Flanders who was the boss, and they did so by embarking on a tour throughout the country, showing off with as much Burgundian splendour as they could possibly muster. After the revolt in Bruges, Philip would have seen his relationship with his subjects not only in Bruges but quite possibly in wider Flanders too, as somewhat fractured. The carefully crafted image of Burgundian strength, prosperity and culture would need to be used to reacquaint the Flemish people with the pillars of justice, equity and common good that their relationship was based on. So Philip and Isabella, with the freshly released Duke of Orléans in tow, made a series of joyous entries into various towns around Flanders, beginning with St. Omer. Remember we first spoke about joyous entries back in episode 14 when talking about Johanna of Brabant and Wenceslaus of Bohemia coming into Brabant? 
they were those highly choreographed ceremonial affairs in which a duke would make a grand entrance into a city and in which their rule would be recognized by the people. In turn, the ruler would himself acknowledge the rights and privileges of the city. It was kind of like a big show between ruler and ruled, where both of them tried to show the other how great they were, and that even though they didn't probably actually like each other that much, they would all pretend that they did. Sort of like when politicians shake hands with each other after a debate, and the handshake is always exaggerated, pumping just a little too vigorously or for a little too long, and paying more attention to how the handshake is being perceived by everybody else in the room, rather than the other person whose hand you are holding. Sorry, I just got sad, remembered, <laughs> shaking hands. Those were the days. Preparations for towns hosting the entries must have stretched for months beforehand. It was a demanding honour. Not only was the cost and arrangement of everything the city's burden, but the performers and exhibits that they arranged, the quality of the feasts and the splendour of the games and general festivities they put on, were all measures by which the Duke could assess how much he liked the city. Did he feel that their effort reflected the magnificence of the culture he had fostered and built? In Bruges, things were even more complicated. They were going to have to make that amende honorable and publicly, and no doubt rather embarrassingly, apologize for the damages they had inflicted upon the Duke. Two years earlier, Philip had almost been stabbed to death by the people of Bruges on the same streets that he was now going to parade down while they humbly prostrated themselves before him and took part in effusive displays of adoration, love, and loyalty to him. But Philip and his forebears had been nurturing this explosion in culture and exultance of splendor for decades, and the entrance into Bruges on December 11th, 1440, brought things to a whole new level. First, the Amonde Honorable took place as city officials barefoot and dressed completely in white to symbolize their penance, came out to meet Philip in the main square. They knelt at his feet and presented to him the keys to the city. The message could not be more clear. It was Philip, not they, who was the real power in Bruges. After this degrading ceremony had taken place, the joyous entry continued on. Philip was greeted by monks singing the Te Deum, a hymn of praise and thanks Assemblies of workers' guilds and representatives came out to show their effusive respect, as well as the international communities who lived within Bruges. As his procession wound its way through the streets of Bruges, various tableaux vivants, kind of like miniature scenes from a play, were presented to the Duke. Remember that it was midway through December, so smack bang in the middle of the Advent, in the lead up to Christmas. Bible scenes were performed depicting stories from the Old Testament of the Hebrew prophets who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, as well as the resurrection of Christ. The message was loud and clear here too, and it was being laid on thick and hard. Philip would have lapped it up. The Duke of Burgundy was being welcomed into a city like Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem. This marked a turning point, after which joyous entries were no longer a solemn occasion in which the ruler and the ruled were simply making vows of agreement to each other, but instead became moments of adoration, dripping in Christian symbolism 
towards the power, authority, and prestige of the Duke. And though this was clearly great fun for Philip and his entourage, it was also worth it for the people of Bruges as well. Even though they had needed to prostrate themselves before Philip, they'd done a fantastic job of it. As written by Peter Arnada in his book Beggars, Iconoclasts, and Civic Patriots, quote, So pleased was Philip with the performance that he gave the keys to the city after he reached the Burgundian residence where the procession and narrative terminated, end quote. So they had successfully managed to kiss and make up with a guy that they had literally tried to murder not long before. A trade deal with the English had been arranged, and so everybody got to have a good party, but they got to know that it was because of the glory of the Burgundian Duke that they did so. The festivities continued on for a couple of days, with a tournament taking place in the main square of Bruges, before the whole thing packed up and headed off to do it all again in Ghent and then Tournai. Philip the Good built upon the strong Burgundian identity he had inherited, and as his domain expanded, he cultivated this identity to become the Grand Duke of the West. Through his patronage of the arts, he made it fashionable for social elites in the Low Countries to invest in musicians, sculptors, painters, writers, entertainers, and anybody else who could bring prestige to a court in a cultural way. By doing this, he engendered a connection between his subjects and himself. The uprising in Bruges in 1436 would not be the last time he would have to deal with Flemish urban revolt. It was something that was always a possibility. Philip experienced how he could still lose control over the loyalty of some of his subjects and could be forced to extreme measures against them, such as blockading Bruges. But his joyous entry into the rebellious city in 1440 and the splendor with which it was celebrated, in which he was compared to Christ himself, gave him a template that he could use to reinforce that authority and respect for his Burgundian regime upon any city that might try to rebel against him again. Philip, after all, still has another few decades of rule ahead of him, and in that time, the Burgundian Netherlands will reach its peak. But they are stories for another episode. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. Don't forget to check out our show notes where you can find more info and our sources. All those pictures and music which we have spoken about throughout the episode will be up there. That golden chain is worth taking a look at. If you're not aware, there is a link in the description of every episode which points you to the right page. Or just go to historyofthenetherlands.com and you'll figure it out. Thanks a lot to our newest best mates on Patreon, Mike Bottle Corcoran, Barry Snag Verston, you're the best and the worst, Andrew, good old Andy, and Taco DeFries, who has a name that is already nacho bad. Snag and Nacho have pledged us five bucks each, so we will end the episode with me saying their awesome new nicknames five times. Snag, 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 snag. Nacho, 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 nacho. For everybody, keep your eye on the feed because we will release an extra free bonus episode next week on Monday. It's a little bit different, but we think you'll like it. Until then, doi. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. 
From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.